The time is now. Close your eyes for just a moment, if you would. Well, not if you're driving and listening to this while you're driving, but if you're not in your car driving, close your eyes for a simple little exercise, if you would. Are they closed? Imagine a world where employers and employees get along all the time. And on that very rare occasion, are your eyes still closed? On that very rare occasion, when there's some dispute, all you have to do as a company is go to your shelf and look at one single, incredibly short, simple, little pamphlet of U.S. employment laws. Every employment law there is in that one little brochure, all written in plain words, easy to understand. Nah, that's why you have me here. Volume 3, Episode 46. This is Employment Law Now, and I am Mike Schmidt, your host still, also the Vice Chair of our Labor and Employment Department here at Cozen O'Connor. Well, the government continues to impose new and additional requirements for employers. Sometimes they seem, well, kind of complicated. Today I am joined by my colleague Sarah Kelly uh, to discuss one that you may have heard about, the EEO-1 Component 2 information that certain employers must provide by the end of September 2019 for the first time. Oh, you have got to be kidding me. Sarah is uh, in our labor and employment group. She's got 30 years of experience litigating and advising on employment discrimination law, and she's also an impressive fellow of the College of Labor and Employment Lawyers. Sarah, thanks so much for being on the podcast. It's a pleasure, Mike. Um, well, and as I started to tell you a few minutes ago, you know, the good news is you're going to be here to help us uncomplicate the, the complicated, um, which is this EEO 1 component 2 thing. Um, the, the somewhat bad news, as I started to tell you before, is once you come on this podcast and you know, people over the years have, have seen this happen. Your life changes a little bit. You you start getting more calls. The neighbors want things. It's hard to go, you know, grocery shopping without getting recognized. So um, I do appreciate you uh, bearing that burden. I'm ready for the paparazzi. Good. I appreciate that. So 
let's get right into it. And, and for those who have not dealt with this before, let's start off with the real basic of the basic. What is an EEO-1 report anyway? So the EEO-1 report has been around for years, um, and employers with 100 or more employees have always had to report annually to the EEOC the number of employees they have in a range of job categories that the EEOC sets out, 10 job categories, and they have to report numbers of employees in each of those categories by gender and ethnicity and race. So uh, that's what we're now calling component one of the EEO-1, but that's the part that's been around for years. And that was for employers, you said, with 100 or more employees? Uh, uh, employers with 100 or more employees or federal contractors if you had 50 plus employees. Okay, and that you weren't identifying employees by name or other contact information. This is just by these various job categories by gender and race. Right. So, and the job cap categories, there are 10 of them. Uh, they range from executive and senior level manager um, through a range of categories, uh, mid-level managers, professionals, uh, down to laborers, helpers, service workers. So, you know, you categorize all of your employees in one of those categories, and the EEOC gives you a lot of instruction on how to do that. And then you report numbers by gender, ethnicity, or race. Okay, so that was always what the EEO-1 requirement was, and now we're referring to that old requirement as Component 1 because we've added this whole new Component 2. Um, and that's what we're here to talk about today. Right. Can you give us some brief context on how we got where we are now with this Component 2 issue and, and what exactly it is? So Component 2 is what we have been calling the pay data reporting requirement. And it really began at the outset of the Obama administration with the focus on equal pay, fair pay. You'll remember the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act, which was the first piece of legislation Obama signed uh, in the beginning of 2009. So the EEOC throughout uh, that time period was trying to focus on ways to uh, bring more attention to the issue of equal pay and they decided that they would require employers who had to file the EEO-1 to also report on their pay data. It took them the entire period of the eight-year Obama administration to figure out how to do that. And but, beyond. And, and beyond. And they created uh, the pay data reporting uh, um, form, and it was supposed to go into effect um, for the 2017 year, with the first reports being made in 2018. But of course, in January of 2017, Trump was inaugurated, and Trump's Office of Management and Budget rolled back the pay data reporting requirement. Um, so brought it all down to a standstill. Okay. And then, so at some point, things got restarted again? So uh, when that happened, uh, the National Women's Law Center and a variety of other advocacy groups in the equal pay area uh, filed a lawsuit against the Office of Management and Budget to require 
the pay data uh, reporting be restored to the EEO-1. And lawsuit proceeded through the courts, and in March of this year, the Federal District Court for the District of Columbia said that they had not gone through a proper process uh, to eliminate the pay data reporting, and that there was, because there was no process, the reporting requirement was reinstated. And so normally, when it comes to the EEO-1 reports, those have to be in, or, or historically have had to be in by May 31st each year? May 31st, right. And obviously, we're in July now, we're way past right. that. So what, what happened so with that? in March, when the court issued its decision, the EEOC wrung its hands and said that there was no way that they could get the pay data reporting up and running in time for the May 31 deadline for the 2018 year. And the court said, that's okay, we can extend the deadline, but we're not going to let you off the hook. And oh, by the way, we're also not going to let you off the hook um, for the prior year. So it was supposed to be reported initially for 2017, um, and the requirement is now that the data for both 2017 and 2018 be reported to the EEOC by September 30th of this year. Which is great because most companies have nothing to do over the summer, nothing right, going on Right, right. This so. is a good way to spend summer vacation. Yeah, and so we'll get in in a moment to exactly what has to be given. Um, but it, but it, what's interesting to me is we have heard over the last couple of years, certainly, all kinds of legislation and all kinds of initiatives in this area of pay equity and gender equity. And it's funny to me how many companies out there, how many employers out there, haven't really still heard about this that much. It seems like this hasn't been getting the same press as other equal pay kinds of initiatives. You know, I think that it it probably went off people's radar screen and nobody thought it was really going to come back. Uh, and yet here it is, back. And in fact, the portal to enter the information, the electronic portal, opened yesterday. So nobody actually really thought the EEOC was going to get that off the ground in time. But they opened the portal yesterday. It will be open till September 30th. And so between now and then, employers who haven't started working on this have an awful lot of work to do to get ready to submit the data in time. Uh, and so you, you sort of blew my cover there because when you said yesterday without giving a date, I have always pretended that I do these live um, for everybody. So you sort of blew my cover that we're now uh, actually recording this ahead of its release date. So to be clear, when you said yesterday, you mean yesterday being July 15th. The portal opened July 15th, <laughs> exactly. Sorry, Mike. No, no, that's okay. I, I can't even edit that out uh, during the editing process, so uh, cover blown. Uh, so in terms of who has to comply with this, is it the same employee size company um, that had to historically deal with the original EEO-1 Component 1 reports? So with one exception, yes. Uh, every employer with 100 or more employees has to comply with the pay data reporting requirement, with what we're calling Component 2. Uh, and it doesn't matter um, where your employees are located. If you have a total of 100 or more employees, whether they be part-time employees, full-time employees, and we're talking people, we're not talking about FTEs or full-time equivalents, 100 or more people working for you, you have to make the report. The only difference is that federal contractors who have um, 
between 50 and 100 employees who have to report on component one do not have to report on component two. So unless they have 100 or more. Unless they unless they top 100 employees total. So if you're a private company um, and you don't have 100 employees, you can basically turn off this podcast episode? Yes. Okay. And go back to any one of my 44 archived episodes and catch up on the other stuff I talk about. And fall asleep. And fall asleep. Okay. And so for those who uh, are covered, because you have 100 or more employees, uh, or if you just find this interesting, or maybe your company, your business will be growing in the near future and you might... uh, Uh, reach and exceed that threshold, let's talk a little bit about what we've got to do here. So you already mentioned uh, the the deadline when they've got to comply, it's September 30th. Uh, The electronic portal to submit the information uh, opened up on July 15th, uh, 2019. Is there any chance that this September 30 deadline gets extended again? Not right now. It would be, employers would be really pushing their luck to think that they don't have to comply and to not take the steps to comply. The Department of Justice, the U.S. Department of Justice, which um, is suing on behalf of the, or representing the Office of Management and Budget, has appealed the district court's order, but it has not asked for a stay of the order, and therefore it is very unlikely that the deadline will be extended again. Okay, so it may, it probably won't be, but businesses should not be doing nothing and sitting on their hands hoping that it will be. That would be a risky strategy. Yeah, I agree. So let's get into the weeds of it a little bit, and and there are a lot of weeds. What exactly has to be given if you are subject to this component two filing requirement? um, What do you have to give to the EEOC by September 30th? An awful lot. Uh, (laughs) um, So first of all, remember it's two years of data. You have to fill out the form for 2017 and 2018. And when I say fill out the form, there is an online sample of the form uh, and it's at the the portal for the for the pay data reporting. So I'm just going to mention yeah, that, that? that portal. It's um, EEOC COMP2. So EEOC COMP2. Dot, number two. Number two. Um, dot NORC, N-O-R-C dot org. So say that again for people scrambling right. for pens and pencils. EEOC C-O-M-P-2, the numeral 2, dot NORC, N-O-R-C, dot org. Uh, And so that's the portal which will have, through which employers will electronically upload this information. You have to do it electronically? So I believe that it must be done electronically, and there are complicated instructions for doing it electronically online. Uh, But for years, I believe that employers who have submitted their EEO-1 data have been doing this electronically. Um, There is a way to print and preserve the form when you get to the end. Uh, But I will also say the electronic instructions for uploading this file data are very complicated. And so one of the people you will need to involve 
in this process is your chief technology officer. Interesting. Okay. And so going back to what actually has to be given uh, for these two years, 2017 and 2018. Right. So two years of data. Employers have to pick what we call a snapshot payroll period. Um, between October 1st and the end of the year, they have to pick their payroll period, which they will report on. Now, one little trick here is if there happens to be a payroll period between October 1st and the end of the year when the employer did not have 100 people working for it, that's a good payroll period to pick because then you don't have to report. Um, so you pick your snapshot period and that's up to you and you report the pay information for that snapshot period. So going back to component one, the historic EEO one, employers have always had to pick a snapshot period and to report based on that snapshot payroll period. Um, you may pick the same snapshot period and quite frankly I don't see a reason not to because you have at least already reported on the numbers of employees in your job categories by race, ethnicity, and gender and so you at least have that much data compiled already. So I don't see why you wouldn't pick the same snapshot period for uh, 2017 and 2018 as you used for EEO1 component 1 for those years. So once you've picked the snapshot period, um, then for each uh, employee who was employed during that snapshot period, you have to report two things, hours worked and year-end W-2 box 1 pay data. And you have to report that categorized in the same way as you did for component one by those 10 job categories and by gender, ethnicity, and race. Um, it's also going to be divided into pay bands and there are a total of, um, I believe it's eight pay bands. Uh, I'm sorry, it's 12 pay bands uh, that you have to categorize employees in. So uh, the form is complicated and it categorizes, it takes each one of the 10 job categories. So for executives and senior level managers, it breaks that down into the 12 pay categories. Does it break it down into whether those individuals are exempt or non-exempt? No. Um, not, it does not specifically do that. Um, the categories, the job categories themselves are likely, you're likely to have people fall into exempt and non-exempt. So for example, um, the first five of the job categories, you are likely to have more of your exempt employees in the first five job categories and more of your non-exempt employees in the lower five categories, the categories six through ten. Because those are less senior, you know, managerial positions. And and so they those are positions like admin support, craft workers, laborers and helpers, service workers. Um, but it's not an automatic that all of your exempts will be in one and all of your non-exempts will be in another. And so just to be clear, so the two things uh, that are being identified for purposes of this component two, uh, hours worked and the uh, pay that's identified in box one of each employee's W-2. Year-end W-2. For the hours worked, 
Um, are those actual hours worked? Are they worked? Are they hours scheduled to work? You know, we have all these FMLA, you know, issues where you're counting this, you're counting that. So the hours worked is probably the biggest challenge of all of this. Um, there's a lot of reasons why we can talk about why the actual pay is a problem, and we will, but the hours worked are going to be the biggest headache for the reporting. Uh, so the EEOC is assuming that every employer has accurately tracked hours worked for its non-exempt employees. And those are the hours that you must report for your non-exempt employees. Actual um, payroll hours worked. And so for different employers, capturing that data will mean different things. Uh, so because you're reporting hours worked, you don't have to report PTO time, for example, but you do have to report overtime. There may be employers that don't distinguish, that just lump PTO time uh, into regular worked hours and don't distinguish between hours worked and hours not worked. It's going to be very difficult for those employers to go back and subtract out PTO time. Um, and the EEOC has not given us guidance on whether the employers must do that, may do that, or should not do that. Well, this is a, and this is actually a good point to ask this question. So, what happens if a you don't do this, and b what happens if you get something wrong? If you if your math is wrong, or you're not taking out PTO, or you're permissibly including PTO. I mean, what 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 are the so ramifications the, here? The bottom line is that it will skew the data because you won't have accurate data to report. And so if, for example, you are uh, an employer who employs exempt employee, non-exempt employees, but you don't track hours for those non-exempts because you just pay everybody based on a 40-hour work week and your employees don't work overtime. So you're a generous employer, you don't subtract out for those non-exempt employees who may show up an hour late. You just report 40 hours for everyone. Um, but you may pay your non-exempt employee who puts in that full 40-hour week better than your non-exempt employee who's always late or leaving early. Uh, and that's going to skew results here. Um, so we have uh, the same issue in an even bigger way for exempt employees. As I was just going to ask you, most companies, when it comes to their exempt, assuming they're, they're properly classified as exempt, most companies don't track hours for exempt employees. Right. And the EEOC does recognize, so first, it, it assumes that employers have properly tracked hours for non-exempt employees. And as I said, gives us no guidance for what to do if you have not. Uh, but for exempt employees, the EEOC does recognize that many employers will not actually track hours worked for exempt employees. And it gives the employer two options for that. Um, maybe we'll call it two and a half options. So you can either say that every um, exempt employee worked 40 hours a week, every full-time exempt employee worked 40 hours a week, or if you have tracked hours, you can report actual hours worked. Um, I don't know how many employers will have a, a, a way to track 
actual hours for exempt employees. Perhaps in some businesses and industries where exempt employees do have to report their time, uh, like in professional firms, law firms, accounting firms, there may be a way of reporting actual hours worked. Um, with the exempt employees, it is the employer's option. So if you want to just simply say that all of your full-time exempt employees have worked 40 hours a week, you may. If you want to try to go back and collect the hours that they have actually recorded, if indeed they have recorded hours, you may do that. And so again, go, going back for a second, so is there a consequence first for employers who don't comply with this and don't submit this at all by September 30th? Is there a consequence? So right now there does not appear to be a, com a consequence for failure to comply. Um, but I think it's still a very risky thing to do, it, certainly if you're a federal contractor. Um, failure to comply for a federal contractor uh, in the course of an OFCCP audit could have ramifications that I'm not really prepared to discuss here uh, but right now for the federal for the employer who is not a federal contractor there's no obvious ramification for failure to comply though so the EEOC could you know theoretically come after you you know through an audit or otherwise and, and take the position that um, they've got jurisdiction to require you to do it where I see the most likely ramification happening is if you had if you were an employer who had an EEOC charge filed and the EEOC as a result of that requested that you submit this data or took a look back to see if you submitted this data, uh, it might be held against you in the course of an investigation, especially if the charge that was filed against you involved a pay equity question and especially if that charge involved a group or a class pay equity claim. So we talked a little bit about that first bucket of information, the hours worked. Uh, you also mentioned that for these 12 pay bands, these 12 um, categories of positions, you have to identify box one from the year-end W-2. Why does that sound simpler than it probably is? Could I just go back and to, to the hours worked yes. to mention, because I said there were uh, sort of two and a half issues with respect to hours worked. As I said, this is live, so yes, absolutely. The half issue is that, and many employers will want to know this, if you have part-time exempt employees, the EEOC only gives you one option, and that is to say that though if you didn't track their actual hours, you must assume that that part-time employee worked 20 hours each week, regardless of whether they worked 10 or 30, um, regardless of what they were regularly scheduled to work. You must uh, you must report that they worked 20 a week. So I, I apologize for interrupting you, but if we could now go back to your question. Yeah, so why is it not as It sounds very simple. I'm getting everybody's year-end W-2. I'm looking at box one. This probably, to me, would be the easiest. We just transfer that number onto the form. Why is that not that it, simple? It absolutely is simple to pick the number and to drop it in. Uh, and that's not the issue. Um, we all know what the W-2 Box 1 data says, and this is record keeping that most employers have no trouble with or issue with at all. It's the, uh, the 
why was this the data that was selected as the proper data to report? Because that W-2 box one data does not necessarily represent real annual compensation. Uh, there are things that are not reported in W-2 box one. So for example, if I withhold the maximum uh, and defer it into my 401k plan and you don't defer anything, I'll appear to make um, less money than you even if I perhaps make more. Because the box one number will be less because it won't include all of these other forms of compensation. Exactly, because that type of compensation is not reported in the federal reporting, which is what W-2 box one is. So what does, I'm assuming the EEOC knows that. They do. And no explanation why they just went ahead and went I with box one. I think because they're a federal agency and they picked the federal uh, year-end compensation data, which is what's reported in, in box one, and that's all we know. Okay. And uh, to be determined whether that changes at some point or, or whether there are other things that need to be identified, at least on the uh, pay side of this reporting right. requirement. But once again, it's this kind of issue that will skew the results of the pay data reporting and perhaps make it appear as though there's a pay equity problem when perhaps there is not. Is the EOC going to do anything with this data once it gets it? We don't know. Um, there's been a lot of speculation that they will share it with the Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs, which has the oversight responsibility for federal contractors. Uh, a lot of speculation that uh, the OFCCP will use it in the context of its audits. Uh, but right now, we don't know how, when, where the data will be used. All right, so on the assumption that uh, as a company you can't just start thinking about this on September 29th, the day before the deadline, what should employers be doing right now? So uh, many employers have already started, and that's a good thing. Uh, but what you need to be doing right now, first of all, is go on to that uh, portal that I mentioned and review the form so you understand what it is that you need to report and begin to work with your uh, HRIS and uh, payroll uh, people so that you can collect the data. As I said, there is a heavy technology component here, so it will be very useful to have your information technology people involved also uh, because collecting the data into a file that can be uploaded to the portal is going to take a lot of effort. So it's... It, uh, for, for example, for an employer of about 2,000, it's probably a three-month process. And right now, we have two and a half months left. And so because nothing is ever simple when it comes to HR and employment law, you know, one of the things that we also have been hearing and reading so much about is this concept of employees um, and people in society more broadly not wanting to be identified as a particular gender. So um, are, are all companies required to or how are they supposed to identify their employees by gender, for example, when you've got 
individuals, groups of individuals who don't identify as a particular gender. Right. Uh, and, and the same issue arises with respect to reporting race and ethnicity. So right now, the EEOC only has two categories, male and female. So the gender reporting does not yet have an other category. Uh, so employers are going to have to categorize their employees by by male and female. Um, and similarly, with respect to race and ethnicity, um, employers typically rely on self-reporting by individuals and employees are usually offered an opportunity to self-report with respect to race and ethnicity. Uh, but there is always a lot of inaccuracy in the basic EEO-1 reporting on those issues and it's going to persist with component two. And so does this place any kind of additional obligation on employers to go around and identify each one of their hundred plus employees by a particular gender, by a particular race? Not technically. There is no actual um, part of this pay data re reporting that requires employers to do anything more than they do now with respect to uh, asking employees to self-identify. But employers may wish to try to get employees to self-identify. So right now, for example, most employers simply ask at the outset of employment, um, but some employers are beginning to publish that request for self-identification annually in an attempt to get more accurate information. So who should be uh, involved um, from your standpoint uh, in terms of preparing for this deadline to come. Uh, you mentioned uh, HRIS uh, folks, you mentioned uh, payroll administrators. This always sounds very self-serving to me when I ask this of people, but is there any benefit or need to have outside counsel assist companies with this? So I think there is, especially uh, if there's not experienced in-house employment counsel uh, for the company. I think there are a lot of questions still about what specifically has to be reported. There's going to be a lot of issues in this hours worked category about what data to use, and outside counsel can be helpful on those issues. Okay, so we're talking about payroll representative, um, an IS representative, um, perhaps counsel in-house or outside. Is that really what the team is that should be involved in these things? So HRIS, payroll, your information technology and insider outside counsel. I think that's the team that really needs to work on this. And I will say, I think it's probably wise to have counsel eyeball the data before it's uploaded, just to take a look and see what it looks like and whether there is any category where there is a real, it, it seems to be a real imbalance. And is doing this and preparing these uh, for filing with the EEOC, does this offer companies an opportunity to sort of do a, a, a self-audit and, and perhaps get ahead of um, pay equity issues that might uh, later come back to bite you? So I think right now so many companies are focused simply on getting this data reported um, that if they haven't already done a pay equity study, uh, they're not, they're not going to have time to get that done before they submit this data. But absolutely, the reinstatement of the requirement, in, in fact, 
before it was before the requirement was stayed by the Office of Management and Budget, a lot of employers had begun pay equity audits specifically because they knew they would have to submit this data. I think once the data is submitted, it is a very good idea, especially if you're a federal contractor, to engage in what I call a real pay equity audit using real experts to help you analyze your pay. Um, it's good to have outside counsel involved in that in an attempt to keep it privileged. Uh, and you want to look at your pay equity issues so that if and when, as a contractor, you're audited by the OFCCP, you're prepared to answer them on what the real data show. Yeah, and we're certainly seeing more claims, more lawsuits being brought in this pay equity uh, area. So it uh, it is good whenever you can do it to get ahead of that issue or at least see what you're dealing with for uh, your particular company. Is, is this September 30th deadline, is this going to be the new annual deadline or are we still going to be then in 2020 having to comply by the end of May? Again, we don't know, but I think employers should be prepared for as long as this requirement lasts uh, to be be able to report it by May 31, which is the original deadline, and it will actually uh, simplify things to some extent, I think, to be able to report it all together. You just gave a little bit of a tease. You just said in that answer, for as long as this requirement lasts. Well, now, I'm not suggesting you have any advanced knowledge, but are you suggesting that there's a possibility that this whole thing goes away at some point? Well, remember that the U.S. Department of Justice has appealed it, and the case will be heard um, by the uh, appellate court, by the D.C. Circuit Court, and they have the... Uh, ability to review and set aside the order of the district court that reinstituted the reporting requirement. So the original EEO1 reporting, which is now component one, that's not at issue. What's at issue is whether the additional component Only two. component two. Okay. Um, so, I mean, this is, this is great. You have uh, certainly uncomplicated in 30 minutes uh, what to many people is a real complicated uh, issue. Uh, there are lots of websites and, and frequently asked questions that are in that website and portal that uh, you mentioned before if people want uh, information. Um, but thank you so much for uh, appearing on the podcast today and walking us through all of this. My pleasure. Well, I hope you found that interesting and certainly useful. You could take some of that information back to those who need it at your company or certainly use it yourself. We've got a lot of great episodes coming up, a lot of information to get into, great additional guests to bring on the podcast. I thank you so much, as always, for listening. And until the next time, I hope all of your labor is productive.